Chapter 7 of The Track of the Typhoon by William Washburn Nutting. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alan Dove. Chapter 7 Crossing the Bay of Biscay. Biscay, monsieur, you please, biscay. Cigarette, s'il vous plaît, cigarette, cigarette. It was some such chorus as this that aroused us that first morning at Roscoff. Shrill and insistent and repeated ad infinitum, it emanated from a dozen tousled little heads that packed the companionway and jostled each other for an intimate view of the mad foreigners. Cute little devils, I thought, as we turned out, dressed and ate our breakfast under a barrage of excited comment and insistent pleading for bisky and cigarettes. Although usually tolerant in my judgment of the conduct of others, I did feel that the tender age of four to seven was too young for cigarettes, but when a generous handout of bisky, sea biscuits, only served to attract other and equally ravenous visitors, I dropped both descriptive adjectives. From then on, they were just plain devils. But you can't be too hard on a regular kid, and during our three days at Roscoff, they had the run of the ship. Although the weather was gray and dreary, the town that had seemed so melancholy the night before took on an entirely different aspect in the morning. The buildings seemed less drab, and the people more alive. After all, Brittany is a corner of France, and no part of France could be dull or uninteresting. Furthermore, Roscoff proved to be something of a summer resort, and while not exactly a Trouville, the hotels and bathing beach, in spite of the lateness of the season, added a bit of life and color to the gray little town. But there was none of the garish artificiality that seems a part of most summer resorts the world over, and those who come to Roscoff come because of a love of its native quaintness. Among those who spend the summer months on the coast of Brittany are Monsieur and Madame Chaumier of Paris, and while the skipper was ashore wandering about the town to avoid the curious visitors who were increasing in numbers as the news of Typhoon's arrival spread through the village, these people came aboard and left an invitation for me to look in on them at Les Capucins. What Les Capucins might be, I hadn't the slightest idea, but I went straight away and discovered one of the most delightful places on the coast of France. Originally a monastery built by the Capuchin monks, the place, with its extensive grounds, walled in in the French manner, had been taken over by Monsieur Chaumier and converted into a villa with every appointment of a modern country home. There were tennis courts and wines and American cigarettes and the largest fig tree in the world. The grim, forbidding walls that were built to cloister somber monks were softened by vines and flowers that were a symbol of the happiness and kindly hospitality of two people who unwittingly had come closer to the true spirit of Christianity than the venerable brotherhood that they succeeded. And there was a guest from London, a Miss Enid guest, to be exact, who knew my good friend, Miss M. Chaplicka, the Oxford ethnologist and explorer, and so I was convinced that blundering into a little niche in a rock-bound coast was right and proper and just as it should have been. Always pretty strong for blundering, I have now become convinced that it is the only policy. Never have I been able to plan for myself better than chance has done it for me. On the second day, the wind held westerly, and we were easily convinced that little would be gained trying to beat to Ushant against it, and so the Chaumiers and all their friends took me for a tramp along the cliffs that skirt the coast. There were quaint farms where respectful, God-fearing peasants eke out a difficult existence. 
The air was rich with the smell of burning peat, and the downs were bright with purple heather. I like the heather, the weather-beaten kind that scorns the easy lowlands and clings to rocky wind-swept crags. There's character in such a flower. With the agility of the elusive mountain goat, and at great sacrifice of editorial dignity, the skipper gathered great bunches of heather from inaccessible places, and later lost his reputation for physical prowess by being soundly beaten at tennis by the lady from London. Madame Chaumier spoke quaint, delightful English, and her husband made up for his inability to handle the language by constantly running off to reappear with American cigarettes or dusty bottles of old wine. No wonder, then, that we again called off our plan to sail the following day, Sunday, September 5th, on the slim excuse of a headwind, and spent still another day with our friends. In the meantime, we had an opportunity between visits to look around the town. An interesting and typically Breton institution with which I first became familiar at Saint-Pierre-Micolon was the municipal laundry, an open-air stone tank about the size of a swimming pool where the women of the village wash the clothes. Standing, each in her own wooden tub, a score of elderly matrons pound away furiously at the family linen, laid out on the stone flags about the basin, and rinse it in the common pool, a practice delightfully communistic in principle, but decidedly at variance with modern ideas of sanitation. But the thing that impressed me most was the ancient weather-beaten cathedral. I looked in during the Sunday service, and in the space of a few minutes got a better idea of what the war had meant to France than by the reading of a dozen books. There were hundreds of black-clad women with the quaint white headdress that is typical of Brittany, and a few old men also dressed in black, each holding stiffly a low-crowned hat with broad brim and black ribbons hanging down behind. Each reverent pair of shoulders seemed bent not only from a life of physical toil, but with a sorrow that only their church could ease. There was not a young man in the entire congregation. When at last we were ready to cast off at high tide on Monday noon, September 6th, our friends were all on hand to see us off. Carnegie came with a bottle of wine, M. Motts, a young physician from Paris, brought the father of the whole crab family. A kind American lady, whose name I have forgotten, brought a basket of fruit, and the Chaumiers came loaded with interesting packages for the entire personnel. The wind was west by north, and strong enough to warrant leaving the double reef in the mainsail. Hoisting the jib, we let Typhoon pay off from the quay, and then hoisted all sail, and worked our way out beyond the harbor lights. During low tide, we had studied the character of the harbor bottom and its range marks, and we were able to sail out smartly without hitting any of the numerous submerged mountain ranges. Once outside the harbor, we held her close hauled just to clear Ile de Bats, and streamed the taffrail log. At the risk of boring a large percentage of the readers, I am going to run in extracts from the log occasionally, for I know there are at least a few enthusiasts who are strong for detail. 2 p.m., log 6.25 miles, came about on starboard tack heading southwest. 3 o'clock, log 11.5 miles, Ile de Bats light abeam, sun coming out. 4 o'clock, log 15 miles, running through fleet of little fishing craft with red sails, close in to a rock-strewn coast with beautiful sandy beach beyond. Came about. Course, north one-quarter west. 410. 
caught good-sized mackerel on trolling spoon and started fire in shipmate in anticipation of crab and fish dinner. 4.30 came about, log fouled with fish line and not working since 4 p.m. 5 o'clock, log 18 miles, caught another fish of some strange local brand. 5.15, tacked again close in to rocky coast. Another mackerel. 5.40, Ildebot's lighthouse fading astern. 6 o'clock, log 21 miles. Came about and stood in again for fish. 7 o'clock, log 26 miles, tacked again. Dinner of crab meat and vin rouge, with which we drank the health of our Roscoff friends. 8 o'clock, log 28.25 miles, tacked. Course west-southwest. Vierge's five-second flash visible occasionally through the mist and rain about three points off starboard bow. Nine o'clock, log 30 miles, came about. Course north. Eleven o'clock, log 36 miles, change course to west-southwest. Fresh breeze. Twelve o'clock, log 40 miles, tacked to north one-half east. Drizzle, no lights visible. Tuesday, September 7th, 1 a.m. Log 41 miles, tacked to west-southwest. 2 o'clock, log 44 miles, wind dead. 2.15, sheeted all sail flat to prevent slatting, all hands below. 4 o'clock, went on deck, both Ildebats and Vierge lights visible for a while, hardly steerage way. 9 o'clock, cooked breakfast of fish, bacon, and tea, concession to English contingent, slatting about in oily ground swell. Too thick to see land, although we must be only a few miles from Vierge, the tall lighthouse which was visible for a while in the morning. Charles out of the picture due to the swell. Pumped up pressure to 150 pounds and tried to start motor, without results. 12 noon, still slatting. Weather too thick for noon latitude sight. Visibility about 100 yards. 3.30 p.m., sun breaking through. Heavy ground swell from northwest indicates that we will soon get wind. Lashed booms to rigging to prevent slatting and just have steerage way. 4 o'clock, time sight for longitude. Chronometer 3 hours, 47 minutes, 29 seconds. Observed altitude 27 degrees, 41 minutes, 30 seconds. Longitude from above 4 degrees, 27 minutes. 5.10, light on Vierge visible again, just about where it was before. If anything, we have lost a bit. Longitude of Vierge from light list is 4 degrees 34 minutes. It bears southwest by south about 4 miles, so that our original longitude by observation, 4 degrees 27 minutes, is not more than about 2 miles off, which proves that chronometer rate is not far out. 740. Light breeze springs up from north. Drizzle. Course west by north. Several flashing lights at entrance to La Bervras on port beam. Vierge scarcely visible through drizzle on port quarter. 12 o'clock, log 46.85, the end of another blue day. Deleted paragraph of purely personal and highly colored opinions on oil motors. Wednesday, September 8th. Paragraph high and steady. No wind, but less groundswell makes life a bit more tolerable. 3 a.m. Steamers passing close aboard. Vierge five-second flash bears south-southeast. A light, probably Ile de Bats, dying out astern. Another flash every five seconds, bears southwest by south. 3.30, drizzle with fog, which cuts out everything but Vierge, a faint glow. 6 o'clock, 
Log 48.5 miles. Clearing. 7 o'clock. Log 48.6. Barely steerage way. 8 o'clock. Flat oily calm. During the morning we shot a mess of puffins or gullymonts, which I took for bull birds like those found off the Newfoundland coast. They have small wings and resemble penguins. Fox goes overboard and retrieves them. 12 noon. Log 49.0 miles. Faint breeze from northeast gradually freshening until 2 p.m. We are doing 2.5 to 3 knots. 2.50 p.m. Fog suddenly envelops us, shutting out Vierge, for which the Lord be praised, as we have been within six miles of it for forty-three hours. Hell, as we had occasion to observe once before, is paved with glassy ground swells. 3.30, clear and sunny again, doing about four knots. 5 o'clock, log 57.5, fog shutting in, foghorn bellowing somewhere off port beam, Decide to go outside Ushant, as the channel inside the island is a ticklish one even in clear weather. 5.30. Rocks visible for a moment far off port bow, bearing southwest, and we head for them so as to get a departure from something definite. 6.45. Several islands appear in sky and rapidly join together into rocky land as fog thins for a few minutes. Suddenly two powerful flashes pierce the clouds far up above us, and soon the black-and-white striped shaft of a towering lighthouse takes form through the murk, almost close enough to hit with the proverbial biscuit. We have gone farther than we thought due to a favorable tide. Those rocks we saw were actually Ushant, and we nearly ran down the light on the western end of the island, which stands 223 feet high and is visible 21 miles in clear weather. There can be no doubt of the identity of the light, for her two flashes every ten seconds, and the siren at two-minute intervals, coincide with the description in the light list. Fortunately, we have cleared Ushant instead of hitting inside it, for this is the worst spot on the entire French coast to be mixed up with in thick weather. 7.20. Picked up red flash of La Jumette on the south side of Ushant. Roar of surf brought to us by the wind, which is now over the quarter. 7.40. Squared away 220 magnetic for Cape Ortegal on the point of Spain, 300 miles across the Bay of Biscay. 8 o'clock, log 65.75 miles, wind directly astern, running wing and wing before it with mizzen boom lashed to shroud, so that in yawing we can favor the mainsail without running a chance of jibing mizzen. Below, reading E.F. Knight's Cruise of the Alert, in which he tells of taking practically the same route from the Solent to Finistiere on his treasure-hunting cruise from England to the desert island of Trinidad. 12 o'clock, log 78.35, wind shifting to east, glass dropping slowly. A tanker bound up channel passes within 100 yards of us, porpoises jumping all about us and blowing like a school of punctured tires. The run across the Bay of Biscay was uneventful except for a bit of a blow on the night of September 9th. The notorious bay certainly did not live up to its bad reputation. This was really my first opportunity to try out my powers as a navigator, for Casey Baldwin had done most of the heavy navigating on the way over, and for this reason I decided to lay a course for Cape Ortegal, which is the northernmost point of Spain, rather than for Finistiere, which is somewhat farther east. This would permit of a bad landfall without much possibility of missing the coast of Spain entirely. 
The Reynolds Current that sweeps in around the point of the Spanish Peninsula would tend to set us to the eastward, but I decided to hold for Ortegal even at the risk of a bit of coastwise work at the other end, which after all would be interesting. The most possible town indicated on our general chart was Ferrol, which seemed to be on a sort of indentation a third of the way from Ortegal to Finistiere. I knew nothing of Ferrol, and the chart certainly did not enlighten me, but at any rate the town seemed to be near the coast and looked like the logical place to put in for provisions for the run to the Azores. Originally I had thought of following down the coast to Lisbon, Portugal, which is in practically the same latitude as the Azores, and hopping across from there, but this was now out of the question. There was no time to travel two sides of a triangle when the hypotenuse would do. Thursday, September 9th. Beautiful sunny day, light breeze from northeast, course southwest one-half south. 1 a.m., log 82.55 miles, lights of Ushant dropping below horizon. 3 o'clock, several steamers passing, Ushant light just visible from cabin top, bearing east-northeast one-half east. 4 o'clock, log 92.05 miles. 6 o'clock, log 102.0 miles. 8 o'clock, log 111.0 miles. 10 o'clock, log 118.25 miles, glass still dropping slowly. 12 noon, log 123.15 miles, days run 74.15 nautical miles. Wind dying. Observed altitude 47 degrees 24 minutes 30 seconds. Latitude from above 47 degrees 43 minutes 26 seconds. 2 p.m. Log 127 miles. Doused mizzen and set spinnaker. Changed course to southwest one half west. 4 o'clock. Log 131.75. Observed altitude 19 degrees 37 minutes 0 seconds. Chronometer 4 hours 42 minutes 37 seconds. Longitude from above, 5 degrees, 40 minutes west. 6 o'clock, log 141.95 miles. 8 o'clock, log 154.55 miles, doing about 7 knots. 10 o'clock, log 166.15 miles, school of porpoises close aboard. 12 o'clock, log 176.35 miles. Friday, September 10th, cloudy, wind still astern. Barometer rising rapidly. Course southwest. 2 a.m. Log 186.75 miles. 4 o'clock. Log 198.25 miles. 8 o'clock. Log 221.45 miles. Cloudy. Drizzle. 9 o'clock. Log 227.35 miles. Rain stopped. Wind falling and hauling a bit east. Barograph straightening out. 10 o'clock. Log 233.15 miles. 10.35, tack fitting on spinnaker boom carries away. Took in spinnaker and jibed as wind is nearly east. Raised mizzen. 12 noon, log 245.75 miles. Days run 122.6 nautical miles. Noon sight, observed altitude 48 degrees 33 minutes 40 seconds. Latitude from above 46 degrees 11 minutes 27 seconds. 4 p.m., log 268.75 miles. Longitude sight, observed altitude 26 degrees, 26 minutes, 30 seconds. Chronometer, 4 hours, 8 minutes, 26 seconds. Longitude from above, 7 degrees, 10 minutes west. Find we are a bit too far west and alter course to southwest by south one-half south. Steering compass.
6 o'clock, log 283 miles. Blowing pretty hard. Propeller starts to spin due to drag of water. 6.30, put a double reef in the mainsail. 8 o'clock, west-west-north on wheel from 8 p.m. to 12 o'clock and drove her in the hope of getting in before Saturday night. Seas came over occasionally. One sea doused me and put out lantern and binnacle lamp. Sailed by the stars for hour and a half. Clear and noticeably warmer, and, though wet, not uncomfortable. 12 o'clock, log 326.75 miles. Turned her over to Fox and doused mizzen. Motion easier, although it's still coming over. One sea goes clean over the mizzen boom, which is in its crutch. New experience for Fox, who takes it stoically. Saturday, September 11th. Bright sunny day, wind southeast moderate. Paragraph dropping gradually. 10 a.m. Shook out double reef in mainsail and hoisted mizzen. 12 noon. Log 390.75. Days run 145 nautical miles. Noon sight. Observed altitude 50 degrees 13 minutes 0 seconds. Latitude from above 44 degrees 19 minutes 11 seconds, which is about 22 miles north of latitude of Itasca Point. 2 p.m. Log 399.35 miles, wind dying out. 4 o'clock, log 401.65 miles, no wind. Longitude 8 degrees, 0 minutes, 0 seconds, which puts us exactly on our course and about 10 miles off land. 6 o'clock, log 403.25 miles, becalmed. Had a drink to cheer up and ate a leisurely supper, including some of Gilbert Fairchild's dasheen chips, a new vegetable that the Department of Agriculture is introducing. Flattened in all sails and lashed blocks to travelers to prevent slatting. Got underway several times during the night, but hardly worthwhile. Sunday, September 12th. Foggy. Paragraph going up like a stepladder. 2.30 a.m. Breeze springs up from south and after a while settles to west by south. Course due south. 8.50. Strange catch-rigged craft looms up through the fog dead ahead bound east. A husky double-ender like some of the Scandinavian craft with white top strake and brown sides, carrying everything she has, dirty white sails, wing and wing, top sails, and brown square sail. Soon lost in fog. 9.10. Fox on watch yells, Land on starboard bow! As we approach cautiously, this proves to be a rocky promontory with the swell breaking into fantastic lacework along the base, which is abrupt and apparently without outlying rocks. As we approach, a plateau takes form with the silhouette of a solitary horse grazing on the skyline, and on beyond to port, a cove with romantic yellow sandy beach just visible through the fog. Off farther to port, a small rocky island, and later high mountains beyond stood in to about 300 yards from point and came about on port tack to beat along within sight of the coast till we identify something to give us our position. No large-scale charts. Not an advisable way to explore a foreign coast, but lots of fun. 10 o'clock. Pass close to another headland, a mountain much larger than the first. Beyond it stretches a yellow beach, behind which are sandy hills with strange trees standing out along the skyline more like a picture by Zoloaga than sunny Spain as Sorolla would paint it. Three little boats put out from some hole in the rocks. They seem to be rigged with lateen or dipping lug rigs. 1010. 
Rain and increasing wind, but sea smooth in the lee of the land. Mountains visible to the eastward over our first headland make it look tiny in comparison. 12 noon, log 430.75 miles, days run 67.25 nautical miles. Rounded a headland 1,000 feet high and stood into another little cove. Beautiful patchwork of cultivated fields stretching up to the sky beyond Sandy Beach with a group of people, tiny and motionless, evidently astonished at apparition of foreign craft. 2 p.m. Stood in again to another sandy beach, rounding a tall mountain, the sides of which are cultivated down to the very cliffs and the tops lost in drifting clouds of fog. Ahead of us, several stucco buildings with red roofs, and on a ridge, a silhouetted line of tall trees with slender trunks and full tops like palms. Even phlegmatic Charles is moved to enthusiasm by the sight. 3.30. Slow work tacking around point. Several big seagoing yawls, topsail schooners, and a steamship rounding the cape, cutting it close as if coming from a harbor on the other side. 4.45. Cleared the point, a tall rocky promontory with a lighthouse perched up 300 feet above the sea. The top of the mountain is serrated into shapes like the proverbial castles in Spain. In all probability it is Cape Pryor, and if so, our landfall was practically perfect. 5 o'clock. More small fishing craft with dipping lug rigs and red and white sails. As the night was likely to be thick, we put into a small bite and anchored in the lee of another rocky headland, where a couple of fishing boats were hard at work hauling nets. Had a difficult hour trying to find out where we are. Ferrol seems to be further along the coast, but how far we were unable to determine by the sign language. In the evening, a dozen fishermen and boys came aboard with all sorts of interesting tributes, including gigantic lobsters and crawfish as long as a man's arm, and a curious sort of shellfish that grows in clusters on the rocks. Also some vigno, which is similar to the French vin rouge. These well-meaning visitors insisted on our boiling the shellfish, which are funny little heart-shaped, clam-like creatures with long necks by which they attach themselves to the rocks or to the bottom of your boat if you stay for any length of time at anchor in Spanish waters. We boiled and ate them according to instructions which were given in pantomime. Since we could not understand their Spanish, they assumed that we were hard of hearing, and all carried on a running fire of conversation at the top of their lungs. Knowing Casey would have approved such hospitality, we treated our visitors to some of his Canadian rye in exchange for the vino tinto, but had occasion to regret this exceedingly, for the entire company, not being used to concentrated beverages of this kind, overestimated their capacity and went to sleep, necessitating considerable physical and moral persuasion to get them safely aboard their own boats at midnight. Monday, September 13th. Wind southwest, foggy with occasional showers. 8.30 a.m., get underway and beat down the coast past several groups of small fishing boats, each with its sail furled on the long yard that is hoisted up on the stocky mast above the heads of the fishermen. The boats seem to be anchored and are constantly disappearing behind the long swells. 12 noon, log 448.75. Fog shuts in thick and blots out cliffs. Wind dies, leaving us slatting again on a glassy swell. 2 p.m., San Carlos of Santana, a trim little steam packet, comes out of the fog, exchanges salutes, and offers us a tow in to Ferrol, which we refuse with thanks. 
A light breeze from the west gives us steerage way, and the tops of the cliffs, and later the surf breaking 50 to 60 feet up the bases of them, are visible through the fog. This is the Death Coast, and it's well named. 3 p.m. Fog shuts in again, but finally we get a steady westerly breeze and round a tall rocky point, halfway up which clings a little lighthouse evidently marking the entrance to Ferrol. Beyond the point, a wonderful fjord opens out ahead of us with gently sloping mountains on either side, the tops of which are still shrouded in clouds of fog, which follow down some of the valleys almost to the water's edge. Gaining speed before a freshening westerly breeze, we sailed for several miles through the most picturesque body of water any of us had ever seen. Cultivated patchwork fields extended up the less barren slopes and were lost in the clouds, and on either side at points of vantage were the remains of ancient Spanish fortresses. We overhauled several of the little fishing craft bound home after a day outside and had a chance to study them at close range. They are double-enders with a pronounced reverse curve to the sections at either end, giving them very fine hollow water lines but extremely full deck lines. The curved stem extends nearly a foot above the shear line, and the rudder is hung on the stern post. As we neared Ferrol, we met another of these boats rowed by women singing a rollicking Spanish song as they bent to the oars. Racing along past a jolly, rambling old fort with battlements and stone sentry boxes at the corners on the port hand, and another more modern and less interesting one to port, we shot into the harbor of Ferrol, a vast basin sparkling in the sunlight, alive with a myriad craft, all save the fighting ships busy on some useful errand. Passing the Spanish Navy close aboard, we dipped our ensign, roused the sleepers into life, and received a belated salute from both, I should say all, of the ships, for His Majesty's Navy, while it isn't much to look at, still numbers several vessels of assorted periods, and Ferrol is the home of the Spanish Navy. Beating smartly up to the town, we dropped the hook near the quay, and right under the walls of the ancient dockyard where Philip II built the ill-fated Spanish Armada that sailed from Ferrol in 1588 and met disaster at the hands of Drake off the Isle of Wight. The log showed that we had traveled 455 nautical miles from Roscoff. End of chapter 7